Well, good morning and uh, welcome to the third week of our Advent series and um, the series Awaiting the Promise. This morning, uh, we'll look again at the Advent of Christ and His coming. Um, as Ricky had uh, started us off two weeks ago, uh, where he outlined who Jesus is and how Jesus in the first Advent appeared to the world, revealing that those who believe in him, that they would have eternal life, that, that they would go from a life of death to a life of life through Christ. And today we're going to go through a chapter that basically gives a history of redemption um, and we'll see how that all plays out. We have a lot to cover, and, and I wanted to keep to the two hours I have allotted for my... No, I'm kidding. Uh, in the scripture that we're going through, uh, two hours would probably be maybe adequate, but we're going to try to go through quickly. Um, if you would, please turn, with, uh, turn your Bibles or use your uh, Realm app and look up Revelation 12. And we'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 17. Um, then we're going to also jump briefly into chapter 20, first few verses, and then uh, verses 7 through 10. But we'll get to that. Uh, while you find that realm event and find a, your place in the Bible, um, I wanted to underscore an important um, point regarding the apocalyptic genre of our text today. There's, there's a lot there. Um, there's a ton of different rabbit trails and nuances, and um, I, I got a, a, a little smile from Pastor Dave and, and also from Seth when these uh, topics for Advent were brought up, and I said, ooh, Serpent Slayer, I want to do that one. And they, they both went, oh, okay, good for you. Um, and so uh, we're going to go quickly, and I'm going to use a lot of generalities because um, it, it's too involved and can unfortunately, be a source of, of some contention among peoples. So, um, the stories about end times and eschatology uh, probably bring more separation within church and or individuals within churches than any other theology, uh, creating different camps or schools of thought, that sort of thing. Um, but if you will, I'm going to do my best to uh, try to focus on an area that we all can agree and um, our Lord Jesus Christ is the serpent slayer. And he is coming again to make all things new. So let's dig in. In verse 1, Revelations 12, says, And a sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven hands and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who, uh, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which 
she, was, she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer a place for him in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out of his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's a lot. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, God, your word tells us that Christ is coming. So, Father, we wait. Um, all the imagery and, and all of the um, description that we hear and see in your word today, Lord, it can be a, a source of confusion, a source of contention, but God, um, it can be a source of great hope. God, there is a son, a mighty king, your son, that is to come, that is to take this dragon, this beast, tie him, and do away with him, and that we would then live in a new world, a new Jerusalem, in your kingdom forever. Father, help us to take comfort, to take joy in that. Lord, be with us. Open our eyes to see and our eyes, uh, our ears to hear from you in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may know, um, well, a few probably maybe know, that um, when I was growing up, my mother was in a church um, that I now know to be deemed a cult. And uh, so as a, as a kid, I heard all sorts of uh, really scary things uh, about the end times, the, the great tribulation, this dragon, um, the beast, the uh, mark of the beast, the uh, lake of fire, all those kinds of things. And in addition to that, through the church and the teaching, and I was old enough that I was beginning to understand what was, uh, 
what was being said from, um, at, from the pulpit. And um, the list of, of things that were required of a person that attended that church um, in order to stay away from and be, be protected from uh, all these horrendous and horrible things that were to come. Uh, if you looked at the list, and as a kid at, at 10 to 12, 13 years old, um, I knew what was expected, and I knew that I was doomed. Um, my heart was such, even at that age, that I did, I said things, um, I behaved certain ways, I had secrets that I was involved in, and um, there's no way I could possibly be kept from these dangers, this lake of fire. So it, it was terrifying for me as a kid. Um, and it wasn't until for many, many years later that I came to understand the truth. And, but one thing I do know as a kid then that is still true now is that the serpent Satan seeks to devour the woman and the child. That's his goal. That's what he is now about doing. So when I was talking to Seth about the sermon and preparing for it, um, Pastor Seth had sent me a, uh, a book called um, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. It's written by Andy Nacelli. It's a small little read, and it's really an interesting read. Um, but the introduction was something that really caught my attention. And in the introduction, he, he gives a list of about six stories that are um, very common stories that we're all, most all of us would be familiar with or know about, and stories like um, St. George and the Dragon, uh, Beowulf, Pilgrim's Progress, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, and yes, even Harry Potter. And what all these stories have in common is that they echo the greatest story ever. And I found that very interesting when I stopped to think about it. It's true. And there literally isn't any plot to any great movie that you've seen, any plot to any great book that you've read that doesn't echo the greatest story ever. Only the difference being is that the greatest story ever isn't just a story. It's true. It's what is bookended between Genesis and Revelation right here. So... John, in his vision in Revelation 12, he, he sees a revelation. He gets a glimpse into um, what we cannot see, or what, you, or what he couldn't see. He sees things that weren't necessarily something that we all see. And so there's this, there's this idea, and it's a big idea today, in the fact that um, there would be a, a, a uh, popular thought today that if it, if it can't be seen, if it can't be touched, if it can't be examined, if it can't be compared to, then is it really anything? Um, the idea of the supernatural is almost, almost seen as fringe. And even on television, I just the other, was it, I don't know, last night, I was flipping channels and um, actually going to watch something on TV and... Uh, it was uh, William, William Shatner um, and the uh, unexplained, right? 
And, then, and so the, in the beginning, he uses his very dramatic, you know, voice and says, is this really true? You know, or is it... And, and so he's going into these things that are what would appear to be paranormal or uh, supernatural, that kind of thing. And it's almost it becomes comedy, right? Um, but it isn't. Now, some of this stuff has been... Uh, turned into something other than what it really is. But, so in, in, in preparing for this, this uh, sermon today, um, I, I looked back at um, several chapters within Revelation and, and looked forward a little bit. Uh, and in chapter 11, it, it, chapter 11 concludes, and this is the way uh, Revelation seems to be written, and it's not necessarily linear at all. <laughs> And so it keeps circling back on itself, and so causing, in my mind, a a little confusion. But um, chapter 11 concludes with the opening of the heavenly temple, giving John a view of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, There are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. And here he sees the kingdom of God in heaven being revealed. Things that have been unseen are now in view. The ark being seen is actually quite significant because in Old Testament law, the ark could not be viewed except by the high priest once a year. Even viewing it would cause death. Um, So we go from that picture um, and all of a sudden, uh, chapter 12, we have a woman, a male child, and a dragon. And indeed, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, give us a new revelation, if you will. We see something that has been invisible to our eyes. And so if you go back to Revelation 6 through 11, it says much about the suffering of God's people, the assault on the church by her enemies, and the ultimate safeguarding by God and God's power of believers through it all. In Revelation 12, it explains that this is all happening on account of Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan and harm Jesus and his followers. D.A. Carson explains what's happening here in Revelation 12. He says it well. Uh, This is not some form of mistaken ancient cosmology demonstrating that the biblical authors were woefully ignorant of scientific facts. Rather, this is part of apocalyptic metaphor that is derived from Hebrew poetry in which all of nature gets involved in everything. When things go well, the hills dance and the trees clap their hands. When things go bad, the stars fall from the sky and nature falls into disarray. This is exactly what's happening here. Satan is about to attempt something that is utterly catastrophic. So his tail swings around and a third of the universe collapses. In verses 1 through 6, we read about a woman, her male child, and a dragon. And verse 5 identifies the male child as the one who is to rule with a rod of iron. This language is a description of the Messiah. And we find the same statement in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, indicating that the male child, of course, is Jesus Christ. A little further on in, in Revelation 12, in verse 9, it identifies this dragon 
as the serpent, that is Satan, this dragon, or Satan has ten horns, just like the beast of Daniel 7, who wages war on God's people in uh, the day that the Son of Man receives his kingdom, since Jesus is the Son of Man, and the dragon is trying to consume the male child, in verse 4, these various threads, they come together to depict Satan's warring against Jesus. And as he is inaugurated, as he has inaugurated his kingdom in the very first advent, in the first coming, and his ministry. So in the Alpha Omega series, we've recently looked at Genesis 3. And in verse 15, the serpent or the dragon receives his curse. And since that day, Satan has been warring against Jesus and the woman. So clearly the male child is Jesus, the dragon is Satan, but who specifically is the woman? Now, the, the simple answer would be, well, Mary. Mary's the mother of Jesus, right? Although that's um, unfortunately a little too simple of an answer. There's more. It's, it's too limiting, I think. In verse 1, we see that the woman is clothed with the sun and the moon is under her feet and that she has a a crown of 12 stars. This corresponds identically with Joseph's vision in Genesis 37, verse 9. And so it's talking about uh, the faithful, the chosen people of God. Now, but when we then look all the way to the end of this chapter, we get to uh, verse 17, and if we read that, and I'll read that once again just so that we're clear... Uh, let's see. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So those that hold to the testimony of Jesus are the people following the people of Israel. That would be, that well... I'm going to say that taken together, the woman would be the church, God's chosen people from then until now. And all of those people through the sin of Adam and Eve back in Genesis have a problem. And the problem, of course, is sin. So the serpent, Satan, is the originator of sin and death our battle is a spiritual battle. The enemies we face, whether they be external or internal, can find their origins from the serpent, Satan. We must be diligent to fight the spiritual battles in prayer, in the truth, in scripture, and in guarding against false teaching. Revelations 12 explains much of why the church has received persecution over the centuries, and still does today. However, one of the traits of the serpent, certainly back in Genesis, is to deceive. And it says in this scripture here that he deceives the entire world. He deceives so much that it's interesting to note that he has deceived himself even into believing that he can take over and replace God, the one that actually created him. But one way 
is that he does this is to be seen as not real at all. Uh, how many people have you talked to that if you, if you ask the question, is there Satan? Is, is there uh, evil that's controlled by an, an entity? And people would say, well, you know, I don't know. I get the picture of the little cartoon devil on the shoulder whispering in your ear and the angel over here, you know, and those kinds of things. And uh, there are a lot of people that would say, mm, I'm not buying it. I, you know, I think people are either innately good or they're innately bad. That's one way he does it. And another way that he does that is to give us thousands and thousands of reasons why or distractions from the gospel itself. Anything will do. If, you, if, if the gospel is not central in a person's life and they have some other focus, that'll do. That is perfectly okay with Satan. Um, I know several people that where I work that they say, they're, they say they're Christian and I don't know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, um, but they, they don't go to church, they kind of just, you know, well, I'm a Christian, I, I read the Bible, you know, that kind of thing. And church is uh, too much trouble, they're too busy. They got too much stuff that, that they got going on, and so their, their little tiny weekend that they have, um, they, they don't have the time to give up to come and learn more about their Christianity. That works as well. But I think Satan's favorite um, is that he likes to whisper the words, did God really say? And of course, we see this in Genesis as well. Did God really say? See, I, I, I'm, I've been in that position myself. I've talked to people that are in that position themselves. Uh, the, uh, the unmarried young man that has a girlfriend that he is, adores, and uh, we're married in our heart. Okay, but did God really say? Yes, he did say that you're to be married. It's between husband and wife that they should be together, right? So we make all these different um, excuses, and all of that works because that's a deception. But that's not who we're talking about here. That's not the Satan. That is Satan, but that's not the Satan that's being described in this chapter. These are all ways that Satan does that, but... In our reading, he's identified as a dragon, a great red dragon, red depicting blood, murder. Um, the dragon is just what you would think it would be from things that you've seen or things that you've read. This is a murdering, uh, scorched earth, destructive monster looking to devour as a matter of fact, Jesus in, in John 8, verse 44, he says that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. So we need to see who this dragon really is. Because it's easy to... I mean, I don't want people to be caught up in the fact that, ooh, this scary Satan. Because one, another one of his fun deceptions is that he likes, I think, to be compared equally to God that he's the evil force and God's the good force and they're 
pitted against one another. That's not even close to true. He's a dog on a leash. I love that expression because that's what he is. But we do need to see who he is and what he is about. So in Scripture here, if you really stop to think and get a visual of what's happening, he stands before the woman while she is giving birth to devour her child. That is an absolutely grotesque and loathsome picture. But this is who he is. From the beginning, he sought to kill and devour the seed. So if we look back at the stories of Pharaoh um, looking to kill the firstborn, the, the sons and Moses supernaturally is saved from that. That's an attempt to kill the seed. Herod um, hears that there's a king coming. So all the young boys of two and younger are killed and yet our serpent slayer finishes the task that he is called to and he defeats the dragon at the cross. Praise his name. D.A. Carson once again says, by going to the cross, Jesus will ultimately destroy the serpent, this devil, who holds people captive under sin, shame, and guilt. He will crush the serpent's head by taking their guilt and shame on himself. In verse 5, she gives birth to her child, and the child was caught up to God and his throne. In verse 6, the woman uh, fled into the wilderness where God had a place prepared in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. <coughs> Pardon me. So here is one of those areas where people go, what the heck does that mean? Um, and so there's multiple opinions. And uh, I'm not going to try to go to all those places. Suffice it to say that when the scripture talks about the woman fled into the wilderness, she's given wings of eagles. This can tell one that, that God provided and provides a means by which the woman, Israel going out, out from Egypt into the desert is fleeing on wings of eagles. You struggling with whatever it might be, God gives a means by which to flee from it through prayer, through your brothers and sisters in Christ, through opening up your world to other people that together can fight against this adversary. D.A. Carson explains, and I think this kind of gives maybe a little bit of his view of things, but he explains thus, for Jews and Christians alike, three and a half years becomes emblematic of a period of intense suffering of whatever duration before God manifests himself in saving power. Of course, when John is writing this book, the Maccabean Revolt was more than two centuries behind him. But the point is that the 1,260 days has become emblematic for a period of severe suffering. John uses the expression to refer to an entire period of suffering between Jesus' first and second advents. And in this period, 
when there will be great suffering, opposition, attack, and death. But ultimately, there will be vindication at the end as God moves in. Now, again, this is one man's opinion. I'm kind of leaning in this direction, but um, it doesn't make a lot of difference, frankly. Because I guess the question is, have you seen any suffering? Are you dealing with any now? Have you seen opposition, attack, death? Of course you have. We live in a fallen, sinful world. And there's a reason why we see these things. War in heaven brings war on earth. There is a war raging. It may not be seen, but it's happening. But we need not, like myself as a kid, we need not fear it. What we need to do is we need to be ready. And we become ready by doing the things that we're called to do in God's word. Peter, Paul, James all clearly teach on this subject. In uh, Paul, in Ephesians 6, 12 and 13, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Peter, in First Peter 1, 2, 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners to, uh, and exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may not see your they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. And then James in chapter 4, verse seven and, verses 7 and 8, subject, uh, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we're getting clear instruction from uh, God's word as to what to do and, and why we need not fear. In verse 7, through the end of the chapter, we see the result of this war in heaven. Michael and his angels go to war fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, they fight back, but the dragon is defeated, and there's no longer a place in heaven for them. The great dragon is thrown down, and that word is used five Six times in this scripture, thrown down, removed. In verses 10 and 11, we see great rejoicing in heaven for the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers. As we know, by looking again in between the pages of Genesis and Revelation and Job, we see Satan coming before God, accusing a brother. He had opportunity to come before God and accuse people, the people of God at that time. Satan has been thrown down. 
and he no longer has access to the throne, and he has been conquered by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Pastor Dave pointed out last week, Jesus' sacrifice, his death and resurrection, conquered death forever for those who believe in his name. So the curse given by God in Genesis 3 has been fulfilled, and the child from the woman, the person of Jesus Christ, has crushed his head. Sin and death have been defeated, but woe to earth, for the devil has come down to us in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So Satan then focuses his attention on the woman. He pursues the woman who gave birth to this male child. He is seeking vengeance. He is seeking revenge. And he's doing it with great wrath. In verse 14, the woman is given two wings of an eagle as so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And again, this is that 1260 days. Oscar Coleman, who is a uh, French Lutheran uh, theologian, gave a useful analogy. Oscar Coleman was one of the first people to come up with this particular way of formulating it, that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It's used quite a bit. Um, First of all, while the kingdom of God is really just a way of describing the rule of God, it's, it's not necessarily a place, but it's a realm where God operates as sovereign. Now, I know he's sovereign over the entire world, but there's a place within this room where God operates as sovereign in your heart, in my heart. <clears throat> and so we can look at the ministry of Jesus Christ as, as he, uh, where, where he came to become a man, lived and died on this earth to be raised again. But as he came, he was ruling and particularly He was ruling in the spiritual realm in the fact that he was casting out demons. Um, He was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. The kingdom had actually broken into our history. And so we say the kingdom is present. But it's not all the way here yet. And yet, the ultimate victory, the ultimate kingdom will only come when Jesus then returns and has his final victory. See, I believe it was uh, also Coleman that um, used an illustration of D-Day um, versus V-E Day, and, and this is some, somewhat helpful in, in describing what's going on here. <clears throat> D-Day was the day, of course, that the Allied troops stormed Normandy, and uh, that was in June of 1944, and essentially that was the blow that ultimately defeated Germany. But the ultimate victory, the end of the war, wasn't for almost another year. And in the course of that period was some of the bloodiest battles that are on record for World War II. Hitler, the Reich, knowing that they were being defeated and pulling back, were fighting with everything they had. They were going to leave their mark, if not try to take back what had been taken from them. But it wasn't until May 8th of 1945 that victory in Europe 
was proclaimed. And I don't believe that this necessarily is a, a picture that, that explains it all. Obviously, um, the cross broke the power of sin and death, and that's far more important necessarily than the ending of a war. But um, the idea is still there. It also gives an idea uh, that the kingdom um, now in the age of the church is present, but is not yet at its fullest. A decisive blow and a clear defeat of Satan has already transpired, and we await the day Christ returns to slay the dragon once and for all and put him in his proper place. Now, if you would, um, briefly turn with me to, <coughs> to Revelation 20, where it gets even more dicey. <laughs> um, in Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Then we go to verse 7 uh, through 10. <clears throat> uh, where am I here? Oh. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So understanding this thousand-year period, that's the big rub, right? Um, or millennia. It divides believers into three major camps. Of course, there's many, 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 many other offshoots of those camps. And I'll, I'll briefly go through what those, uh, those three major ideas are. <clears throat> uh, first would be premillennialism. And that the millennium is a long period of time, perhaps a literal 1,000 years, when King Jesus will rule the, on earth. Jesus will return before that, the millennium, hence pre-millennialism. Secondly, would be post-millennialism. The millennium is a golden age on earth. Jesus will return after that golden age or after that millennium, hence post-millennialism. And then amillennialism or amillennialism. The millennium begins when Christ rose from the dead and will conclude when he returns to earth. Believers who die during this period of reign with Jesus, will reign with Jesus in heaven. When Jesus dies and rose again, he decisively defeated Satan and bound him. But your millennial view, my millennial view, isn't really that important. What's far more important is that Jesus is coming back to complete our favorite story. He's going to slay the dragon and save his bride. 
And one of the, in that book, uh, Andy Nacelli's book, uh, he said a friend of his kept using the phrase, kill the dragon, save the girl. That's what this is about. Kill the dragon, save the girl. <laughs> that, well, that's pretty simple. Um, so whatever it means that an angel binds the dragon for a thousand years, we can, agree, we can all agree that at minimum it entails that God is more powerful than the dragon. As a matter of fact, God just sends an angel with the keys and the chain and says, go bind him. That's great news. The dragon cannot bind God. So in Revelations 20, 10, it says, the last verse that I read, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. What a fitting end to the greatest story. So what does this all mean then? I mean, what, what, what are we supposed to do with all of this? So I would like to suggest three things. First of all, we need to recognize that there is a war raging. Um, it's really easy to think, especially as life seems to go along well. Uh, we're fortunate that in this country we're not struggling necessarily day in and day out financially um, like other places in the world, other believers in the world, other parts of this bride in this world. But there are struggles that we're facing all the time. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us to be sober-minded and be watchful that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Secondly, we need to recognize that we need to be diligent in the fight against this enemy. First of all, realize that there's a war raging. Realize that there is an enemy and he is on the prowl. And then recognize that we know we need to fight against this enemy. And the way that we do that is through prayer to gather as God's people, to make our struggles known to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that together we can fight the adversary. Colossians 3 says, set our mind on things above. It can be so easy to be distracted with all the different things in this life. And again, Satan's jumping up and down when that's happening. We're turning our attention elsewhere and seeking our, our, our source of pleasure from something else other than our Savior. Thirdly, recognize we have nothing to fear because the serpent slayer has defeated the dragon and has saved the woman. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit 
that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This spirit is of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So I'll I'll conclude with the rest of the story. So growing up, I had this horrible fear of end times stuff. And that was because of the way I understood it. Um, I understand today things are different. I have a serpent slayer, a hero, one that has done the work for me, that I don't have to fight the dragon. I can turn to my Savior, and he will fight it for me. It's done. On the cross, he said, it is finished. But there are people all around us, all around you, who live in that kind of fear, fear of death, fear of the unknown, but they all have something in common. And that is that they love a good dragon slayer story. We all do. And I think there's a reason why. As has been preached over the last couple of months, we are all image bearers of God. This dragon slayer who comes to save his bride, he will save his people from the fear and the dread of this lost and sinful world. I came to know the true story of the redemption of Jesus Christ because I was told it. So tell the story of our glorious Savior. It's, one, it's the only dragon slayer story that has the power to save. Let's pray.